Chapter 15 Life in Swallowdale The explorers slept rather late in the morning. When they woke, there was a rush to the head of the valley to see if the dam had been washed away. It had not. Not a stone of it had stirred, and everybody had a dip in the new bathing pool. They had come back, and Susan was reminding them that it was a long way down to Swainson's farm and that somebody must fetch the milk before they could have breakfast. When a cheerful voice said, Well, you have made yourselves comfortable. Did you have a good night? And they saw Mary Swainson looking down on them from the top of the slope above the cave. She had a milk can in one hand and a big market basket in the other. Rice pudding, she said, from Holly Howe. And Mrs. Walker's coming to tea with you tomorrow and bringing another pudding with her, so you have to eat this one today. Uh, don't try and get down there, said John, it's slippery. But Mary Swainson seemed to know the valley very well. She went a few yards farther on along the edge of it and then came down by a sheep track that ended close by the bathing pool. That's a good weir you've made, she said, as John and Susan met her and took the milk can and the basket. Slippery, you may well say that rock is. Many's the pair of breeches my brothers wore out on that rock, sliding from top to bottom of it. Roger had not thought of the side of the valley from this point of view. He went off to try it, first from halfway up, and then from the top. It was a very good slide. There's, there's a better over here, said Mary a few minutes later, pointing up the other side of the valley. Not so steep, she added, and not so hard on cloth. Skin, said Roger, feeling the damage already done by two or three slides down the steep rock that hid Peter Ducks. You come down to the farm, said Mary, and I'll darn that. It won't be the first by a long count. Oh, and you found the way into the cave, have you? I thought you would have when Mr. Turner looked in yesterday to say where you were. Have you been in? Come and look, said Susan. Nobody could mind Mary Swainson, and even Titty thought it didn't matter that she had known about the cave. John told her it was a secret now, and she promised to say nothing about it. From that moment, Mary Swainson, though she lived at the farm down below the moor and was busy from morning to night, seemed to the explorers more like an ally than a native. You could always be sure of Mary. She took a cup of tea with them that first morning, and after breakfast, Roger, Susan and Titty went down with her to the farm when John went down to meet Captain Flint to begin work on the mast. Roger was down at the farm next day to be darned again. Mary <coughs> darned him about twice a day until at last he was tired of the knickerbocker breaker, which, Titty said, was much the best name for it. Soon after John had left the cart track in the wood by the lake and was making his way through the trees to Hornsea Cove, he heard the noise of a handsaw. Captain Flint was there before him and was hard at work shaping the foot of the mast making it exactly like the foot of the mast that had been broken, so that it would fit cleanly into the socket in the keelson. That was soon done. 
John had brought the shaping plane down from the camp in his knapsack, and now Captain Flint showed him how to use it. The plane was curved, so that it would take shavings off a rounded surface as evenly as an ordinary plane takes shavings off a plank. He had also brought down the calipers, big pincers that opened and shut and had a small screw to keep them just as much open or as much shut as you wanted. Captain Flint showed John how to measure the same distance along both masts and then how to fix the calipers just so much open that both curved points touched the wood when they were used to measure the thickness of the old mast. Then he set to work planing down the new mast evenly all round until it too exactly fitted between the points of the calipers. Remember one thing, he said, never take off too much. If you take off too little, you can always take off a bit more, but if you take off too much, you can never put it back. They worked hard at the mast all that morning until nearly dinner time. When the others came from the farm and told of how they'd been singing choruses with old Mr. Swainson and sewing a patch into Mrs. Swainson's new patchwork quilt and seeing pigs and calves and a foal and the biggest tabby cat that ever was seen in the world. He follows Mary about, but she isn't going to let him come near Swallowdale. But she says he's frightened of parrots, so it wouldn't matter if he did come. And, of course, the mate invited Captain Flint to stop for dinner, and he said he would be delighted, and had indeed brought five pork pies from Rio and five fruit pies to match, which he hoped would not come amiss. He brought the parcel with these good things in it out of the shade of a bush where he had put it to keep cool, and took a fishing rod, a fishing basket, and a landing net out of his boat. He put the parcel in the basket for easy carrying. I thought of going up to Trout Tarn after dinner, he said, and I'll show you how to cast a fly. Let's all fish, said Roger. You won't do much in the tarn except with flies, said Captain Flint, but if you had a good worm or two, you'd soon get trout out of the beck. Well, we've got our fishing rods, said Roger. Well, we'll see what you can do in the way, with wor way of worms, he said Captain Flint. It was during that dinner in Swallowdale that Roger asked Captain Flint the question that for one reason or another he had not asked before, though it had been in his mind since the first day. Captain Flint, he began, hello? Why did you cover up your cannon with a black sheet to keep strangers and dust off it? A cannon's better than a sheet to keep strangers off. Didn't keep you off, did it, when you captured the houseboat and made me walk the plank? Why, I wake in the night even now thinking of the sharks. Well, we wanted you to fire it this year, but I'm not living in the houseboat just now. Why not? Captain Flint said nothing, just for a moment. Everybody was listening. At last he said, Look here, Roger. The very first minute I can, I'll be back there with a barrel of gunpowder, 
and you shall come and fire the thing yourself. Let's go and do it now. He can't, said Titty. It's the great aunt. Captain Nancy said so. But she isn't going to stop forever, said Captain Flint. Trout Tarn was nearly a mile beyond Swallowdale, high on the top of the moor, a little lake lying in a hollow of rock and heather. When the swallows saw it, they wished almost that they'd made their camp on its rocky shores. But Titty said it had no cave. And Susan said that if it was a bother bringing wood to Swallowdale, it would be miles more bother bringing it to Trout Tarn. Two miles more bother, one each way, said Roger. And besides, said Susan, it would be that much further from Swainson's farm. We'd have to spend all our time fetching wood and milk. John and Captain Flint were talking of something quite different, and that was the catching of trout. And when Captain Flint sat down and began to put his tackle together, the others stopped talking to look. This was not at all like the perch fishing down on the big lake. There was no float, for one thing, no minnow, no worm. Instead, Captain Flint opened a little tin box, took three flies from it, and gave them to Roger to hold. What are they made of? asked John. Feathers and silk. All small flies, said Captain Flint. It's no good fishing big ones up here. That's woodcock and orange silk. That one is dark snipe and purple. And this is a black spider, brown silk, and one of the black, shiny, burnished feathers from the neck of a cock pheasant. Best fly of the lot on a hot day up here, and the easiest to tie. Did you make them yourself? asked John. Of course I did, said Captain Flint. Can we have a fly to fish with? asked Titty. Roger's got his rod. No good, able seaman. You can't throw a fly with a perch rod. And you'll frighten the trout away if you chuck a big red float at them. If you've got a good lot of worms, you could catch some in the back. We've only got one worm, said Roger, but he's a beauty. Well, see what you can do with him in the back, said Captain Flint, who was himself impatient to be fishing while the wind rippled the surface of the town. Come on, John. Keep well out of the way, Mr. Mate, and keep the others clear. We don't want to hook an explorer instead of a trout. He began moving slowly up the southern side of the town, the side from which the wind was coming, swishing his rod backwards and forwards, letting out line and then letting the flies drop on the water far out along the edge of the ripples, waiting for a moment, and then slowly, slowly, inch by inch, lifting the point of the rod, bringing the flies in again until, with a steady upward lift, he picked the line up from the water, sent it flying up in the air behind him, paused a half second for it to straighten, and then, switching the point of the rod forward again, sent the flies out to fall light of scraps of down, one behind the other, a yard further up the town. The third or fourth time his flies dropped on the water, there was a splash at the woodcock and orange, the rod bent, 
and a moment later a fat little trout was being drawn over the net that John was holding, ready for him quite still and well below the surface. Roger and Titty wanted to rush in to look at the trout, but Susan knew that trout fishing is serious business and that a crowd of explorers heading along the bank is not likely to encourage the fish to rise. So she stopped them in time and they watched the fishing from a distance. Then Captain Flint gave John the rod and for a minute or two, John tried to make the line straighten high in the air behind him and then shoot forward, unrolling itself until once more it straightened out, this time in front of him and well above the water, so that the flies should drop like snowflakes. Up now, pause, forward again, Captain Flint was saying. Aim about two feet above the water. Don't take the rod too far back, no need for force. Make the tip of the rod do the work. Look here, let me hold your hand and show you the way to do it. Now then. It was not a very good cast, for two hands on a rod are not better than one if they belong to different people. Still, the flies did, at last, go out instead of landing in a mess only a yard or two from the shore. There was a splash. John struck. The flies flew back over his head and caught in the heather behind him. Captain Flint crawled back and freed them. I say, that was a trout, wasn't it? said John. Of course it was. Try again in the same place. Steady. Remember not to hurry when the line is behind you. It'll be all right if the point of your rod didn't go too far back. There he is. Got him. Well done. And presently, Captain Flint was holding the net while Roger pulled his first trout over it when Captain Flint lifted it out. This was too much for Roger. Let's go and fish too, he said, opening the tobacco tin in which he had his worm. The tarn is crammed with fish. Look at the way they're pulling them out. Two already. We haven't got any flies, said Titty. Yes, but what a worm, said Roger. He's the best worm I ever caught. Captain Flint said we'd better try him in the back, said Titty. The back's not big enough, said Roger. They left Susan and turned back towards the place at which the beck flowed out of the town. Susan slowly followed the fly fishers. We'll fish here, said Roger. It's a lovely place for a float. He and Roger were crawling round the edge of a little bay where the rock fell steeply into dark water. Together they put up Roger's perch rod. Together, not without some awful difficulties, they put the giant worm on the perch hook. They pulled the float up the line so that the worm would be deep in the water. Then Roger swung the worm and float out from the rock. They tugged a lot more line off the reel. The red float moved by wind or the slight current, moved away from the shore and stopped when the line would let it go no further. Roger held the rod, and Titty stood beside him watching it, but the red float moved no more. They sat down to it, then Roger gave the rod to Titty. After a bit, Titty gave the rod to Roger. 
Then they propped the rod across a clump of heather with its butt wedged under a rock. That was better. They watched it for some time and began talking of other things. Then they decided that it would be all right by itself, and they went scouting over the rocks till they could see far up the tarn. There were John and Captain Flint and Susan. They saw the splashing as John caught a fish. They saw it put into Captain Flint's basket. Then they saw John give the rod to Susan and take the basket while Susan learnt to cast. For a long time they watched, and at last they saw Susan catch a fish. Perhaps he'd have let us fish too if we'd gone on. They looked back down into their little bay. I can't see our float, said Titty. There it is, shouted Roger. It's moving. Titty, Titty, something's pulling like anything. Look at the rod. There was a frantic race back to the rod, which was jerking angrily up and down. The others had made between them a nice basket of plump little trout, a dozen perhaps, all about a quarter of a pound apiece, and all very much the same size. You don't often get them bigger than this up here, said Captain Flint as they walked back together, but they're very sweet. Sometimes in the evening you may see a monster moving, but nobody ever catches one of them. A half-pound fish is a very good one, and the quarter-pounders are good enough. The really big ones never seem to come up. What's the matter with Roger, said Susan suddenly. They heard Titty's voice, shrill and desperate. Help! Help! They're all right, said John. They're both there. But what on earth are they doing? Help! Help! shrilled Titty. They've got a fish, shouted Captain Flint. Hang on to the rod, John. Let's, let's have the net. And in a moment he was leaping over rocks and heather as hard as he could go, forgetting altogether how much he weighed and how many years had passed since he fi first he fished. Hang on to it, he shouted. Roger's fallen in, said Susan. Oh, oh, I ought never to have left them. There was a fearful splashing away by the foot of the tarn. Titty was holding the rod now, and they'd moved round the point of the little bay where they'd left their float, and were at the edge of the shallows close above the place where the beck left the tarn. Into these shallows Roger had splashed, and a few minutes later, splashing worse than ever, he scrambled ashore with a big trout clasped in his arms. He slipped as he was getting out. The trout fell, but Roger fell on it, and by the time Captain Flint arrived with the net, Roger, Titty and the trout were a safe dozen yards from the water. He's two pounds if he's an ounce, said Captain Flint. You've got one of the grandfathers beaten the lot of us, float tackle and all. Titty and Roger's big fish was far too big to go in the basket. They carried it between them in Captain Flint's landing net. Isn't it a pity Mother isn't coming to tea today, said Titty. 
She ought to see it, said Captain Flint, and in the end they sent it to Hollyhow. Captain Flint was to leave it there on his way up the lake. Very soon after tea, he was off. <coughs> I don't want to be late, he said. Those two pirates were twenty minutes late for lunch yesterday. They ran into a calm, not their fault, but their mother hadn't heard the last of it when I ran away this morning. Ran away? said Tiddy. Well, hurried, said Captain Flint. I had to be down here early if we were going to get going with the new mast. Will the Amazons be coming tomorrow? asked Susan. Don't tell us if they're going to make their surprise attack, said John. From what I heard, I don't think they'll be able to get away. No, I'm sure they won't be here tomorrow, but I'll do my best for them the day after that. Perhaps it's a good thing they can't come tomorrow, said John. There's a lot to do on the mast. They don't think it's a good thing, said Captain Flint. I think it's horrid that they can't come, said Titty. So do I, said Captain Flint, but it can't be helped. The big trout was wrapped in bracken together with a bit of paper on which Titty had written, Mother, with love from Titty and Roger. And Roger had written, We caught it ourselves. For a moment, indeed, he found it hard to say goodbye to the fish and to see its rounded, spotted sides for the last time. But after all, Mother was going to have it for supper, probably, and Captain Flint could not wait. Roger took a last look and then held the bracken leaves together while Captain Flint made a neat lacing round them with string so that the big trout made a very handsome parcel. Captain Flint left the rod and flies, a cast or two, and the net and basket for John and Susan to look after, and they were carefully stored in Peter Duck's. Don't waste time fishing the tarn unless there's a good southerly wind like today's, he said, as he said, went off. You'll probably do much better in the beck. There was a little gloom that evening at the thought of the native trouble that was bothering the Amazons, but it was difficult to think of fish and trouble at the same time and Susan had more helpers than she needed when she was cleaning the little trout for supper. Each fish was admired, though no one could be sure which was John's first fish and which one was Susan's. I wish we'd caught some of them, said Roger. But John said he was a greedy little beast, seeing that he and Titty between them had caught a trout nearly as big as all the others put together. The sizzling and spitting of the boiling butter as Susan fried the trout in batches over the campfire reminded them of last year's perch fishing. For the next two days, Roger could think of very little but trout. He spent that evening between supper and bed, partly in sliding down the knickerbocker breaker, and partly in turning over the loose stones at the side of the beck looking for worms and mostly finding ants. Next morning, after going down with Susan for the milk and being darned, he went up again to Trout Tarn and tried to tempt another monster, but caught nothing, but gave it up when he found that Titty, fishing 
the little pools of the Beck just below the tarn and using the less important worms had caught four little trout in a way that John had showed her before going, to, going down to work on the mast. After dinner he too began fishing the pools without a float and by the time John came up from the cove at the end of a hard day's work on the mast bringing with him mother and the ship's baby, who had rowed into the cove in time to come up to Swanadale for tea, Roger had himself caught two, and there was a good deal of hurry in getting them cleaned and cooked in time for mother to try with the bun loaf and the butter. Yesterday's big trout had been boiled at Hollyhow and had made supper for mother and nurse, and Mr and Mrs Jackson had had some too, and there'd been some for Bridget to have after her porridge at breakfast. Mother said it was the biggest trout she'd ever seen in England, although she'd seen much bigger in Australia and New Zealand. The ship's baby was delighted with the ship's parrot's private perch. Mother liked the bathing pool. She had been all up the valley before, at last, they showed her its secret and pulled aside the heather from the doorway and gave her Susan's torch and told her to go in and see Peter Duck's cave. What she said about that pleased everybody. Any explorer would be glad if he'd found a cave like that. This pleased Titty and Roger. It's very neat and well-kept larder. This pleased Susan. It wants nothing but a stone table. John at once decided he would make one. And what a place to hide in! This pleased all of them, but no sleeping in it. Susan explained that nobody was going to sleep in it except the parrot. And Peter Duck, said Titty. Of course, said Mother. Hello, what's this? Ben Gunn? She was looking at a patch of wall lit by Susan's torch the very patch on which Captain Flint had carved the name Ben Gunn so many years before. Another name had been added underneath the first, and a bracket joined the two. You see, Ben Gunn belongs to Captain Flint, and Peter Duck is ours, said Titty. The others peered at the wall. This is what they read. Ben Gunn. Peter Duck, partners. The letters were not all the same size, nor were they very straight. But it would have been hard to do better working with a knife by the light of a candle lantern. But when did you do it? asked Susan. When you and Roger went for the milk this morning, said Titty, and John had gone up to the Watchtower Rock. The Watchtower Rock, said Mother. What's that? And they took her up there, and she lifted the ship's baby up to John and then climbed up herself and looked back over the lake to Hollyhow, far down below, and up over the moor to the big hills. They told her which of them was Kanchen Yunga, and how some day they were going to join the Amazons and climb that mountain together. Poor dears, said Mother, from what I hear they're having a rather rough time. Horrible, said John, we saw them out driving. 
with gloves on, said Titty. What's the great aunt really like, asked Susan. Didn't she come to tea to make friends the day after we sailed away to Wildcat Island, said Titty. I wouldn't uh, say she came to make friends, said Mother. It was a curiosity call. She made Mrs. Blackett bring her because she wanted to know what we were like. But didn't she make friends when she saw how nice you are? Mother laughed. Perhaps she didn't think so. She would say no more about the great aunt, and all the rest of the time she was up on the Watchtower Rock and at tea in Swallowdale and on the way down to the cove when all the explorers went with her to see her safely through the jungle. And she talked about fishing and about caves and camping in the Australian bush where there were much worse snakes than adders. All the same as they climbed through the woods on the way back to the camp that evening, Titty said to John, Mother doesn't like her either. No, said John, I'm sure she doesn't. Anyway, perhaps the Amazons will manage to get away from her tomorrow and make the attack on Swallowdale. Next day, almost sure that the attack would come, John waited most of the morning in Swallowdale or on the Watchtower Rock. Titty and Roger were sent for the milk by themselves and told not to be a minute longer than they could help for fear the attack would come while they were away. Later on, Susan said she must have some more wood, and while three of the explorers were gathering wood, one was waiting on the Watchtower Rock to signal to them in case of need. And the wood gatherers kept near the edge of the forest and kept looking every few minutes to see that the lookout away on the rock above Swallowdale was making no sign. But the whole morning passed. And in the afternoon, when John went down to the cove, sure that the Amazons would not think it worthwhile to cross the moor so late, he found that Captain Flint had been in the cove all morning, working on the mast. John worked hard all the afternoon, and as Captain Flint had left a note pinned to the mast to say he would not be coming next day, John decided that something ought to be done about the holiday tasks. When he came up to Swallowdale in the evening, he said so to Susan. And Susan agreed that with a whole week of the holidays gone and the holiday tasks not yet begun, it was high time that everybody settled down to them. I don't believe the Amazons are really going to attack, he said. Not now, anyway. It isn't as if they were free, like last year. They probably can't get away, said Susan. Even Captain Flint can't, said John. But on the fourth day after the move to Swallowdale, when nobody was really expecting it, the attack came. Chapter 16. Surprise Attack Titty on that morning had taken the telescope and a French grammar book up to the top of Watch Tower Rock to be getting on with her holiday task. Sometimes she swept the horizon with the telescope and then, as nothing was moving but the sheep, she put the telescope down and had another go at the book. 
She had a pretty firm hold on Je tu a il a, but was still muddled with Ave and Avie and Ave, and lost hope altogether when it came to Oim and Oirnt. Roger, who had no holiday task to bother about and had wanted Titty to come fishing with him, was looking very carefully for adders. Presently he tired of that, climbed to the top of the watchtower and threw himself down beside Titty. He picked up the telescope and looked away over the moor to the north and then away to the northeast over the woods and across the lake to Rio and Hollyhow. He watched a steamer till he could see it no more and then slowly swung the telescope back towards the north looking at the farther edge of the moorland where it dropped down towards the invisible valley of the Amazon River. Hello, he said. Shut up, said Titty. There's nothing there. Joy, tu, oi, il, oi. But there is, said Roger. Nous oim, vous, vous. Botheration, Roger, now I've lost the page. It's a red cap, said Roger, like a red spider moving very fast. Titty took the telescope and a moment later the French verbs had lost their chance for that day. It's Nancy, he said, or Peggy. Yes, there's another, two red caps. They're a long way apart. They must be crawling too, keeping low in the bracken. What donkeys not to take their red caps off? Come on, Roger, don't stand up. Wriggle backwards to the edge and then let yourself down. I'll go first. They'll be watching. Don't let them see that we've spotted them. Lucky we've not got red caps. One more look, said Roger. Titty gave him the telescope, took the edge of the French grammar between her lips so as to have both hands free, and slid feet foremost over the edge of the rock on the side nearest to the camp, where there were ledges in the rock that made good steps. Come on, Roger, hand down the telescope. Take care. Roger, lying flat on the rock, handed down the telescope and then slewed round. His feet showed over the edge. They wriggled. His knees showed... He hung by his middle, scrabbling for the top step with one foot. Titty, risking getting kicked, grabbed the foot and put it in the right place. A moment later... Roger was safely on the ground. Keep the rock between us and them, said Titty, and be quick, we must catch John before he goes... up to the tarn to do algebra, and Susan was going too. They dodged through the heather, and in a minute or two were over the edge and scrambling and sliding down into Swallowdale. Then they picked themselves up and ran towards the tents. John, with an algebra book lying open on the ground beside him, was just knotting three flies on a cast. The rod was ready, propped up against the rocks by the door of Peter Duck's cave. Susan, with an exercise book and a pencil, was busy with geography and at the same time keeping half an eye on the saucepan. John had suggested that it would be a good thing to serve out rations of hard-boiled eggs and the water in the saucepan was very slow in boiling. Quick, quick, said Titty, they're coming, over the moor. We've seen them, squeaked Roger, both of them. I saw their red caps, they're trying not to be seen. How far away are they? John quickly wound up his ca- the cast on his hand and 
put it back in the basket with the rest of the fishing tackle. Right away on the edge of the moor. I wonder if there's really time. It would be silly to let them catch us half in and half out. They're a long way off, said Tiddy. I'm sure we can do it. Well, you two start away with your tents and the mate and I'll scout. Then, if there isn't time, we could easily put your tents up again in a minute or two. Come on, Roger, I'll race you, said Titty. You say, strike tents when you're ready to begin, and then we'll both do it together. Susan and John hurried up the steep side of Swallowdale and disappeared, while Roger and Titty flung themselves upon their tents, loosened guy ropes, jerked up tent pegs, took the little bamboo poles to pieces and folded up the pail, cream-coloured canvas. They rolled up their sleeping bags and then, folding their ground sheets, once across wrapped tent and sleeping bags and poles together, put each set of tent pegs in its little canvas sack and stuffed each little sack into the middle of the bundle to which it belonged. Titty would have been ready first, but she left a peg out and had to dig for the little sack to put it in. They were both sitting breathless on top of their bundles when John and Susan came crawling over the edge of the valley and hurried down to the camp. We'll do it all right, said Captain John, quickly taking the fishing rod to pieces, but there's not much time to spare. All right, Mr Mate, I'll do both tents if you can deal with the cooking things. What about the parrot, A.B.? He'll not say a word, said the able seaman. We'll put his cover on his cage to make sure. You won't mind, will you, Polly? Ten minutes later, the camp in Swallowdale was as if it had never been. Or at least as if it had been long ago deserted. Nothing but the blackened stones of Susan's fireplace showed that human beings had, at one time or another, had a fire there. Susan had been chosen to have a last look round. The others who'd count on her to notice anything that had been forgotten. She found a bathing towel spread over a clump of heather to dry and she picked it up but couldn't find anything else. A loudish whisper came from behind her. Hurry up! The mate looked once more up and down the deserted valley and then joined the others in Peter Duck's cave. The moment she was inside, John pulled into place the last of the big clumps of heather that disguised the doorway. In the cave, a candle lantern had been lit and was standing on the narrow, uneven shelf that ran across one of the rocky walls. Titty and Roger, already holding their breath, were sitting on their bundles close under the lantern. The tin boxes with the stores were neatly piled beside the woodstack, and on the top of the woodstack was the parrot's cage, covered with its dark blue cloth. As the mate's eyes grew accustomed to the dim, flickering candlelight, she saw that Titty had arranged the cooking things in a neat row, and that the fishing rods, which had been propped against the woodstack when she went out, were standing up in a corner, out of everybody's way. Peter Duck's enjoying this like anything, said Titty. He says it's just what his cave is meant for. 
Mr. Mate, said Captain John, turning round from the low and narrow slit of a doorway. That was very good work all round. You have a very smart crew. Serve out a ration of chocolate. No need, Roger, said the mate. Don't move. Don't touch the lantern. I put a lot of chocolate out on purpose. It's on the top of the tins. Voices sounded somehow hollow in the cave. Thank you, whispered by one or other as the chocolate went round. And that seemed to the one who whispered it as if it had been whispered by someone else. And when the half-empty biscuit box slipped and fell on the stone floor of the cave, it startled everybody like an explosion. Shh! Shh! said John. They might be quite near by now. They were coming fast, though they were keeping low down in the heather and bracken as ever as they ever they could. They didn't know we'd seen them. Listen, said Susan. In the cave, it seemed almost as if nothing outside could be heard except the noise of the stream. John lay down on the ground with his head on the threshold, hidden by the heather in the doorway. The others saw his hand signalling back to them for silence. For some minutes there was not a sound, except that once the parrot scraped his beak on his perch. Then suddenly, outside, there was a long, shrill whistle that was heard not only by John, but by everybody else. It sounded as if it came from just over Hood. Then another whistle shrilled, this time from the other side of the valley. Then there were yells of Amazons forever from two different directions. The noise of stones slipping, the noise of scrambling feet, and then, once more, a long silence, broken at last... by the voice of Captain Nancy, quite close to the mouth of the cave. Shiver my timbers, but where are they? They must have gone, came the voice of Peggy. Both voices were puzzled and doubtful. Didn't you say you saw someone on their watchtower? I thought I did. But the whole camp's gone. They've shifted. Perhaps they've got in a row, too. Inside the cave, nobody breathed, except the parrot. Nancy's voice came again with the noise of a stone dropping on stones. Hello, they can't have been gone long. These stones are hot. Susan's had a fire here and cleared it away in a hurry. There's a burnt stick in the back. No ashes in the fireplace, and yet the stones are too hot to touch. They've thrown the embers in the back. Yes, there's another burnt stick. They must have seen us, put the fire out and sloped. I'd have seen them if they'd tried to get down to Horseshoe Cove. I couldn't have helped seeing them unless they went long ago, because all the time I was working round, I could see the place where the beck drops into the woods. Well, said Nancy's voice again, they must have gone up to Trout Tarn, where Uncle Jim said they caught the big fish. They could have done that without being seen if they crept along the beck. But with all their tents and everything, it's a rum go. Shiver my timbers if it isn't. John had been scribbling on a bit of paper. Without moving from his place, lying close to the very mouth of the cave, he passed the scrap of paper back and waved it behind him. Susan took it quietly and read it in the light of the candle. 
Can you make the parrot say something? Susan showed it to Titty, and Titty, moving on tiptoe, lifted the parrot's cave off the woodstack and took it to the mouth of the cave. She tapped John's shoulder, and he glanced back, saw the cage, wriggled to one side and made room for it, and Titty put it close to the doorway so that all the light that came through the doorway fell on the blue cover that was keeping the parrot quiet. Outside there was the voice of Peggy. We're very late already. Come on, said Nancy's voice. At a trot. We can't they can't be gone further than the tarn. There was the noise of hurried steps going up the side of the stream towards the bathing pool. Now, whispered John. Titty pulled off the blue cover from the parrot's cage. Pieces of eight, yelled the startled parrot, and then as Titty hurriedly pulled the cover on again, he gave a long, angry scream, more like a wild forest parrot in a rage than like a tame and learned one who knew how to talk, and even a small bit of the multiplication table. Where are they? came the voice of Nancy outside, coming nearer again down the valley. The parrot sounded close here, said Peggy's voice. I know that, you tame galoot. Of course it's close here, but where? They've hidden the parrot somewhere in the heather. Anyone can see they can't be here themselves. Let's go and climb the watchtower and look round from there. That's the best idea you've had yet. We'll spot them there, then, whenever they are. There was a splash as someone slipped in, slipped in crossing the stream, and then the clattering of the loose screes as the Amazons ran up the farther side of the valley. Just for a moment, John waited. Then he cautiously moved the heather and peeped out. All clear, he said. Come on, quick. A moment later, everybody was blinking in the sunshine outside. Half a minute, said Susan, I've forgotten the sticks. She dived into the cave again and came out with a handful of firewood and a bundle of the dry leaves she used for kindling. John put the clumps of heather back into place behind her. I've got the matches, he said. Susan hurried across the fireplace and in a moment had her fire ready for lighting. The others settled round the fireplace as if they'd been lying there all day. Susan lit the dry leaves. Smoke poured up. Titty pulled the cover once more off the parrot's cage and the parrot made up for lost time by a long series of shrieks and all the words it could remember. Pretty Polly, pretty Polly, pieces of eight, two, twice, Polly, two, 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 and then shrieked again. The puzzled faces of the Amazons looked down into Swallowdale from the edge of the valley.